Thank you, Mike. Good morning. How's everybody? Good. Good to see you. Welcome to the Parkway Church. My name is Zach, one of the pastors here. If you've got a Bible, we're going to be in Romans chapter 12, starting in verse 9. Romans chapter 12, starting in verse 9. While you're turning there, I want to start with a little illustration. So I don't know if you know this or not, but different groups of things go by different group names, right? So if you get a bunch of geese together, that is called a what? What is it? Gaggle, gander, I've heard several different things. See, maybe you don't know it as well as you thought. What do you call it when you get a bunch of cows together? What is a group of cows called? A herd? What about a group of crows? It's called a murder. Isn't that ominous? All right, it's called a murder of crows. A group of rhinos is called a crash, which I think is pretty awesome. And so uh, the guys on staff uh, and I were joking around this last week and uh, about some of these things, and we decided to make some of our own classifications for different groups of things that I would like to share with you. You ready? A group of millennial-aged men is called a podcast, okay? That's what it's called. When a bunch of them get together, that is called a podcast. A group of people who do CrossFit is called an annoyance, okay? You have an annoyance of CrossFitters. When you see them in their natural habitat, out in the wild, that's what that's called, okay? A group of bodybuilders is called a yuck, all right? Because those guys look gross. That's what a group of bodybuilders is. What do you call a group of rednecks when you see? What is a group of rednecks? It's called an Applebee's, okay? An Applebee's. Don't get, if you love Applebee's, it's just a joke, all right? Don't get mad. And then lastly, what do you call a group of men who wear socks with sandals when you see them in the wild? You're out there, you're watching the Discovery Channel, and they come upon the elusive men wearing socks with sandals. Well, that group of men who wear socks and sandals is called a Disney cruise. You have a Disney cruise worth of sock-sandaled men, okay? Now, those are just jokes. Those are just to wake you up this morning. This next one is not a joke. What do you call, according to this text, a group of Christians? And the answer is that this text will point out that we are called a family. The Bible will call the church many things, a bride, a body, but today we're going to see that we are to, to be a family, that we're to have this familial love for one another. And in this text, we're given 13 commands, just a string of 13 commands over and over and over. So before I explain that, I need to say something that's really important. Romans, the book of Romans, does not start here in Romans 12, okay? The book of Romans does not start by just giving you a bunch of commands. If it did that, you might fall into legalism. You might feel like the way you please God is by trying to keep all these rules. No, Romans will give you 11 chapters of the gospel. It will give you 11 chapters of theology. It will spend all this time talking about our depravity and how we cannot be saved no matter how good we are, which is why we're only saved by faith in Christ, which is only a gift of God, and God has elected us. And then after all of that, it will then say, so therefore walk this way. These are rules for the, the members of God's family. And so before you follow these rules, you need to be a member of God's family, which comes through faith in Christ alone. So realize Christianity is not if I do these things, God will accept me. Christianity is God has accepted me in Christ alone, and therefore I do these things. So keep that in mind. I don't want you falling into legalism. I don't want you leaving here and saying, I just need to do more good actions. I want you leaving here knowing that Christ has done all the good actions on your behalf, and therefore, because of that, in light of that, because you're already loved by God, this is then what it looks like to be a member of God's family. So let's start here in verse 9 with the first one. The first phrase here, let love be genuine abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good. Let's look at the first phrase there in verse 9. It says, let love be genuine. In Greek, there's actually no verb here. It literally just says genuine love. 
There is a sense in which let love be genuine kind of serves as a title. It kind of serves as a heading for everything else that's going to follow. What does it mean to have genuine love? It means abhorring what is evil. It means holding fast to what is good. It means loving one another. So keep that in mind here. And let me ask you this. Why do you think that the Apostle Paul starts off with this command to love one another? Because he's just following within the Jesus tradition. Jesus says, if you want to keep all of these commands in the Old Testament, here's really the two you need to know. Love God with everything and then love others. Love others as yourself. And so what the Apostle Paul is doing is just following in that teaching. Before he gives us the specifics of what this looks like, he's making us go back to the teachings of Jesus to say we are to love one another. Romans 13, 8 through 9. Owe no one anything except to love each other, for the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Okay? Now look back at verse 9 and see where it says, let love be, give me the word, genuine. Okay? The Bible is not commanding here sentimentality. It's not commanding that fake niceness. You know what I mean when I say fake niceness? You meet certain people and they're not really nice, they're kind of cheesy fake nice. They never have any struggles and they never have any problems and they don't struggle with any sin and everything's always good. When I meet someone like that, my first thought is, this person's probably a serial killer. That's the first thing I think. They're, they're overcompensating and not showing their sins and not showing that they're broken because they have a body buried in their backyard. That's the first thing I think when I see something like that. That is not the kind of love the Bible is commanding here. It is saying, don't have mere sentimentality. Don't have mere fake churchy love. It's saying, actually care for one another, which is evidenced by acting kindly to one another. Okay? So if this command is for us to love one another, I need to explain what love is biblically because it is different than love in our culture. Okay? The way our culture uses the word love means affirmation. That's what it means in 2019 in America, at least. Okay? Love equals affirmation. It means taking somebody where they are and just supporting and affirming them wherever they are. That's what love means to our culture. That is not what love means in the Bible. Okay? In the Bible, love means doing what is best for somebody, whether they like it or not. Love in the Bible is doing what is best for somebody. It's getting them closer to Jesus. So let me say it stronger. You can't love your friend by helping them rob a bank. That's not love because that is getting them further from Christ and that is walking in unrighteousness. You cannot love a mistress. You can have strong emotional affections for a mistress, but you can't love a mistress. It's not a real relationship. It's a demonic relationship. How can you love someone and lead them further away from Christ and on the way to condemnation? You can't. When two men want to get married because they love each other, I don't deny that they have strong emotions. What I would deny is that that's real biblical love. How can you love someone by pushing them further from Christ and further from His commands and having them walk in unrighteousness and doing spiritual damage? You can't. So in the Bible, loving someone has to do with doing what's best for them. And sometimes to the outside world, that will appear unloving. So when we have to do church discipline and we have to remove somebody from our congregation, the Bible says that is loving. That is a wake-up call so they don't go to hell, whereas our culture would look at that and they would say, that doesn't seem very nice. That doesn't seem very loving. When we discipline our kids, which the Bible commands us to do with the rod over and over and over again, some people would think that that is unloving. No, what's unloving is not teaching your kids righteousness so they go to prison. What's loving is teaching them righteousness. Okay? So let me ask you this question. Who loves Christ more? The person who's in worship and they're crying and weeping and they feel really close to God and then they go home and walk in unrighteousness the rest of the week? 
or the person who comes in here and doesn't have all that response, and yet when they go home, they walk in righteousness. It's the second person who loves Christ. Why? Because Christ says, if you love me, you will obey my commands. That is the evidence of love biblically. That's the kind of genuine love that this text is giving us. Now look at the next two qualifiers, okay? The next two qualifiers will show what genuine love is. The first one is to abhor what is evil, okay? Now here's why I love that one. The Bible just gave you permission to hate some stuff, okay? Oftentimes we're told to love these, love these kind of things, whatever. Here the Bible's going to say as a command, there are things you should hate. Now look at me so you don't misunderstand this. Not people. We don't hate people. Our enemies are not flesh and blood, okay? You hate theft. You don't hate a thief, okay? You, you understand the difference? You, you hate someone who is, you hate adultery. You don't hate an adulterer, for example. So we are to hate, though, what is evil. I think most of us realize there's evil out there and we're kind of neutral towards it and we should just be pursuing what's good. The Bible's going to say to abhor. This is a strong word. To abhor, to hate, to despise what is evil. You hate what opposes God. You hate false teaching. You hate uh, sexual morality. You hate what is evil. Jude 22, 23. And have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. Okay? Now, here's what you need to know. Love and hate, we typically think of as, op uh, of, as opposites, but those two ideas go together. How can it be that God has the attribute of love and he also has the attribute of wrath? Because when you love something, you hate the thing that opposes what you love. If God does not have the attribute of wrath, he cannot love you. He has to hate your sin. He has to hate the devil. He has to hate certain things. His wrath and his love go together. It's the same way with us. I love my kids. So if my kids get cancer, how do you think I feel about cancer? I abhor it. I hate it. This idea of love and hate, in a sense, go together. I love junk food, okay? Not just like it, but like love it too much. You want to know what I had for breakfast this morning? I had chocolate Lucky Charms. There's no real food in that. It's just sugar. It's like diabetes cereal. It's just sugar on sugar. That's all it is. When I make nachos, did you know when you make nachos, you don't have to use boring normal chips. You can use Doritos and put the nacho cheese on there. Right? So because I love junk food, I hate fad diets. I hate fad diets. They come out every few months. Eat a bunch of meat, don't eat meat. Eat bread, don't eat bread. Eat sweets, don't eat sweets. The very fact that they contradict each other should be evidence that you shouldn't just get on that crazy cycle. Here's a biblical diet. Eat in proportion and work out. The end, okay? Because I love junk food, I hate what opposes junk food, fad diets, okay? I remember one time being at a, uh, a church, and there was a lady who was trying to get several people there to all be a part of this diet. And I said, tell me about this diet. And she said, okay, on this diet, you can't eat bread, and you can't have any alcohol, <clears throat> and you can't have any sweets, and you have to stay away from dairy. That's what she said. And I said, okay, so let me make sure I understand your diet. I can't take communion because I can't take bread or wine. And because I can't have sweets or dairy, I can't enter a land flowing with milk and honey. You have a de facto unbiblical diet, okay? But this text is saying you abhor what is evil because it opposes the thing you love, which is Christ. That's the idea. That love and hate aren't always opposites. You're to love certain things and hate other things. Look at the next uh, section here. Hold fast to what is good here in verse 9. 1 Thessalonians 5, 21 through 22. But test everything. 
Hold fast to what is good and abstain from every form of evil. Here you have in 1 Thessalonians kind of the reversal of this command. This command says, abhor what's evil, love what's good. Thessalonians says, love what's good, hate what is evil. Okay? But th this phrase here in Greek when it says hold fast is actually stronger in Greek than it is in English. It would bring up connotations of uh, a marriage union that one holds fast to their wife, or one leaves their mother and father and, and is united to their wife. There's this leave and cleave principle. That's the idea here, that you are to love what is good. You are to hate what's evil. You are to love what's righteous. You are to love what's good. You are to love what's pure. Philippians 4.8. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, Think about these things. Now, let me be clear uh, on this Philippians text real, real, real quick with you. This text is not saying you can never think about things that are evil. It is saying you can't think about sinful things. I don't mean like lustful thoughts, but here's what I mean. Let's say you're a doctor. You're going to have to think about cancer, okay? Let's say you're a police officer. You're going to have to think about crime, and you're going to have to think about violence. This text is not saying withdraw from the world, don't ever read any books, don't do any of those kind of things. What it's saying is your primary thoughts should be on what is true, what is wise, what is godly, what is beautiful, that you're to be renewing your mind. We've talked about that the last two weeks in a row, that actions start with renewing your mind with true principles, with biblical principles, with theological things. We're to hold fast to what is good. Now look at verse 10. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Okay? Verse 10 begins very similarly to verse 9. It starts with love one another with brotherly affection. Now, let me tell you why this is powerful. Within the span of these two verses, the Apostle Paul has already had to tell us to love one another twice. That's the main theme of what he's trying to say. Okay? That is really the only thing that you have to remember today. Romans 12 is going to give us a bunch of different commands, but that's going to be the main one, that we love one another. So I'll give you an example. So when I was in school, elementary school, middle school, etc., cetera, uh, there were certain subjects I liked and certain subjects I didn't like, okay? So I liked, I mean, other than recess and lunch, yeah, yeah, yeah. I liked history, right, because I thought it was fascinating. I liked science because you got to play with fire and you got to cut open dead animals and these kind of things, so I enjoyed science. That was fun. I didn't like English because it was too subjective. I would write a paper, turn it into the English teacher, and she would write some comment on it like, I don't think you put enough emotion into this paper. And so I'd write back and say, that's weird. I don't think you put enough emotion into my grade. And so it's too subjective. Who's right? Right? Who's right? I didn't like that. And then I liked math at the beginning, but as I got older, I didn't like math as much. Do you know why? Because it had 1,000 rules that you had to remember, or as they say, 1,000, right? Too many rules when it came to math. So when I was a kid, I liked math because there was addition and subtraction, and it was fun. But then as you get older, it starts to become awful. You start getting word problems. If a train leaves Dallas at 4.45 and it's traveling 40 miles an hour, at what point will this be relevant for you getting a job, right? Those kind of questions. And then you move into algebra, where some insane person decided to start mixing letters and numbers. Why would you do that? Numbers were doing fine in their category, and letters were great. They were out there making words and, and spelling things and conjunction junctioning things. Don't mix them together. And then you move on to geometry. Now, what should be easier than shapes? But it's not easy. You had to give for geometry what were called proofs. So you'd be taking some test, and it would say, prove that this shape is a triangle. And you're like, look at it. Just look at it. It's a tri There's three sides and three angles. They equal 180 degrees. Look at it. There, there's my proof. See the image above, right? 
What is an acute angle? Obviously, it's an angle that's adorable. I don't know. I don't remember this. And by the end of this test, you just wanted to hang yourself with a hypotenuse or something, and it was just, it was awful, right? And so I remember asking the teacher and saying, teacher, I'm sorry, when will we need to know this in real life? Why, why do I have to remember all these rules? And she said, because, Zach, you're not always going to have a calculator on you. Do you know what this is? This is a calculator that I have on me all the time. And not only that, it doesn't just have a calculator. I can access the internet, and I can ask any mathematical question I want, and somebody smarter than me has already figured it out. That teacher was super wrong, right? Now, here's why I tell you that. I don't have to remember all of those different rules today if I need to figure something out. I'm cooking, and I need to convert from quarts to liters or whatever. All I have to remember is this one rule. Go to my iPhone. Go to my, that's all I have to remember. That could have saved me a lot of time, okay? Now, here's why I tell you this. Romans 12 is going to give us a bunch of different rules, and the point is not for you to memorize all of those, although that'd be fine if you wanted to do that. Here's the one you have to remember. Love one another. Love one another. What does love look like? It looks like the commands in the Bible, but really, if you think to yourself before doing some action, is this what is best? Does this get me the most of Jesus? Does this get other people the most of Jesus? That's the question to ask. And really, it's like going to the iPhone. It's the only thing you have to remember. You don't have to remember 10 hundred rules. You just have to remember that, okay? That's the idea here. 1 John 4, 20 through 21. Look at this. This is a convicting verse. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. Here's what this text just said here in, in 1 John. If you're someone who says you're a Christian and you love Christ, yet you don't love other people, you don't enjoy other people. I think we've all met people like that, people that have been in church 50 years, but they're stodgy and mean and they don't care about others. They don't like hanging out with others. They don't love people. People are an annoyance to them. The Bible just said you do not love God. If you can't love someone you can see that's right in front of you, you cannot love a being who you cannot see who is everywhere. That's the idea that this text is going to say our love for others is linked to our love for God, okay? Now, I want you to look at this phrase again in verse 10. Look again in verse 10. I want you to see this phrase, brotherly affection. It says, love one another with brotherly affection. 1 Timothy 5, 1 through 2. Do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father. Younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, younger women as sisters in all purity. What this text is saying is that we are a family. We're a family. There's one person that you can enjoy sexually, that is your spouse. Other than that, everyone else in the church is a family member. Older men you should see as fathers, you should be respectful. Younger men you see as brothers. Older women you see as mothers and you're respectful. Younger women you see as sisters. We are a family. Blood is thicker than water, but baptismal water is thicker than blood. I think we have a tendency to know that the church is our family, but we don't really think it's our real family. Our real family to us is our immediate family. Biblically, that is the opposite of how we should think about it. Your most real family is the church. That's why Christ would say that sometimes that means that you end up leaving mother and father and all these kind of things for his sake. People abandon you because of your faith. You get persecuted. Somebody gets locked up in prison because you love Christ. Your most real family here is the church. That's why it uses the phrase brotherly affection. That's why I said a group of people are of Christians are called a family. Now look at verse 10 again, and notice this phrase, one another. See that phrase? It's mentioned twice. Love one another, 
and outdo one another. Let me get on a soapbox for a second, okay? We as humans are made by God for community. We are wired for community. We must have other people, okay? Without it, we will go crazy. Y'all ever seen Castaway? Where Tom Hanks gets, uh, he's on an airplane, and of course it crashes because airplanes are terrifying, and he's on this desert island, and he doesn't have anyone to talk to, so he invents someone to talk to, Wilson, right? The volleyball. Or what happens if someone's in prison and they act up? They get put in solitary confinement, grown-up timeout, because we are so wired for community that if we don't have it, we will literally go crazy. You leave somebody in solitary too long and they will go crazy. We are wired for community. How much more true is that in the church? Okay? Is that in the church? You cannot do Lone Ranger Christianity. You cannot even obey the commands of Christ apart from the body. So let me tell you where the pendulum swung too far. In Roman Catholicism, there was this idea that salvation, justification, comes through the sacramental system of the Roman Catholic Church. So the way that you obtain salvation in Roman Catholicism is you had to have priests that would give you the seven sacraments, things such as penance and your infant baptism and partaking of the Eucharist and the Mass and confirmation and all these other kinds of things. The Protestant reformers rightly saw that's not how one is saved. One is saved simply by faith in Christ. That's how you get justification. But the reformers held that you must be part of a church. Today, we have swung the pendulum even beyond the reformers, and we've acted like you can just have this relationship with you and Jesus. Let me say this as strongly as I can. You cannot expect to be part of the bride of Christ and not be part of the bride of Christ. There is no salvation outside of the church. I don't mean that in the Roman Catholic sense. I mean that in the sense that if you say you love Jesus and then disobey all of his commands when it comes to church, you don't love Jesus. That's as strongly as I can say it. You don't get to do Lone Ranger Christianity. I meet people all the time, and uh, maybe it'll be a neighbor or someone at a restaurant, and uh, they find out I'm a pastor or whatever, and they say, well, I'm a Christian. And I say, where do you go to church? And they say, I don't go to church. And I instantly think, okay, you say you love Jesus. Here's some commands Jesus gives you. Take a, partake of communion. Are you going to do that by yourself? Submit to elders. How are you doing that without a church? To bear one another's burdens, to not uh, give up meeting together, as some are in the habit of doing. You see, you can't even obey Jesus apart from the people of God. You can't obey all his commands, okay? Now, let me be clear. I'm not saying you have to be a member of a church to be saved. I'm not saying you have to be in an official community group. What I am saying is if you really love Jesus, you will obey his commands, and here are some of his commands that involve other people. You ready? Live in harmony with one another. Welcome one another. Instruct one another. Comfort one another. Agree with one another. Bear one another's burdens. Be kind to one another. Do not lie to one another. Love one another. Encourage one another. Exhort one another. Confess your sins to one another. Show hospitality to one another. And those are just some of them in the New Testament, okay? If you are not seeking to fulfill these one another's in the New Testament, you are sinning. We have to rely on one another. The Bible will not let you do Lone Ranger Christianity. You must do it within the people of God. And that is why even just in this text, two times, it mentions that we are to do things with one another. So let me clarify. You're saved by faith in Christ alone. You're not saved by Christ plus church attendance. Please don't hear me say that. But when you come to know Christ and he changes you and you're completely saved and forgiven, your lifestyle then looks different. And part of that difference is that you care for one another. You treat other Christians as brothers and sisters. Okay? Now look at the second one here. Outdo one another in showing honor here in verse 10. Outdo one another in showing honor. Now, some people are very competitive at everything. That's how Jeff Ashley is. He, he wants to win at everything. So you'll be going to throw trash away, and he's like, let's see who can make their trash in the can from the furthest distance, right? He, he's just competitive with everything. 
There are other people that are competitive just in some things, though. And recently, I uh, played a, a member here at Parkway. I will not give the name of this person. I played them at a game of Monopoly. And this person is the most competitive, aggressive Monopoly player I have ever met in my life. He's like the Genghis Khan of Monopoly or the uh, Machiavelli of Monopoly. In Monopoly, you can make trades, like for property and money and this kind of stuff. He would try to make trades that aren't even in the rules. He'd be like, you know what? I'll give you Park Place for your actual wedding ring. And you're like, wait a second. What is that? That's not a real. I'll give you 500 Monopoly dollars if you'll come over to my house and do my laundry this week. And we're like, what is happening here? And I've played him now twice, and he has won twice. Okay? Very competitive. Well, here's something the Bible just said, that if you want to be really competitive in something, you want to be really good at something, here's what you can be competitive in. Ready? Serving one another. Be the best there is at putting others before yourself. Be the best there is about honoring other people, about caring for other people. See, we have a tendency to mainly be focused on us, and we really think we're being saintly when we give up some of our time to help. What the Bible's going to do is it's going to reverse that on us. Philippians 2.3, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. That's what this means to outdo one another in showing honor. It means that you give deference to others. You want to compete in something? Competition's great, but here's a great thing you can compete in. Be the best at serving. Be the best at loving. Be the best at putting others first. That's what the text here will command us to do. Verse 11, do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Okay? Now, a few things I want you to see here. Look at verse 11. This is the first time we've been given a negative command. All the other commands so far have been do this, do this, do this. Here we get our first negative one. Do not something. And it says to not be slothful in zeal to be fervent in spirit, and to serve the Lord. I'm going to address all of these together because these are not three separate commands. This is one command stated three different ways, okay? So let me, let me describe it this way. When it comes to sin, not sinners, not culture, when it comes to sin itself, stay away from sin. Fight sin. Abhor sin. Gouge out your eye, cut off your hand, get internet out of your house, do whatever you have to do to fight sin. Have nothing to do with sin, you don't get to wean yourself off sin. It's not like you're murdering somebody and then you just go down to assaulting people every now and again. You go cold turkey off of sin. There's no Nicorette patch for sin. You just stay away from it. You put sin to death. You do not manage it, okay? When it comes to things that are morally neutral, the issue is going to be, uh, it's going to be moderation. It's not that you always eat or that you never eat. You sometimes eat, Okay? It's not that you never watch TV or you only watch TV. It's that you sometimes watch TV. For things that are morally neutral, it's going to vary from person to person, and the answer is moderation. When it comes to things that are righteous, pursue it with all your might. Pursue it with all your You cannot love God too much. You cannot serve others too much. You cannot love truth too much. Pursue those righteous things with every fiber in your being. That's the idea. To be zealous and to be fervent and to serve Christ, those are the same things. Love Christ. Be passionate about your Christianity. Part of our problem is not that we love things too much. It's just that we're just, we're just not passionate. We don't even pursue our sins passionately. We just dabble in them. This text is going to say when things are evil, stay away. When things are uh, morally neutral, the answer is moderation. But when it comes to righteousness, when it comes to loving God, when it comes to your Christianity, you pursue it. You have a strong sense of zeal, okay? A strong sense of zeal. Now, I want to say something real quick about the charismatic movement, because this text sometimes get mis gets misapplied. What is the charismatic movement? The charismatic movement is a movement within many denominations 
which emphasizes the gifts of the Holy Spirit mentioned in 1 Corinthians uh, and Ephesians and some of these other places. And it emphasizes those, and it is a movement that is growing quickly. Now, let me say some good things about it and some bad things about it. The good things about the charismatic movement is, one, they at least acknowledge the Holy Spirit. Sometimes he's treated as like the uh, stepchild of the Trinity, and he's not. They realize that he is God. Also, some of the people that I've met that really have a joy and really have a love for God are charismatic people. Additionally, they're doing great at evangelism. I don't know if you know this or not, but in Asia, Africa, South America, and some places in North America, some of the fastest growing churches are charismatic churches. Those are all good things. Let me give you some critiques, though, of the charismatic movement, okay? One, sometimes there's a bit of an anti-intellectualism there. There's a bit of an anti-theology stance with some of them. Sometimes the Holy Spirit is exalted at the expense of the other members of the Trinity. That's not good. There is one group of uh, charismatics that is heretical, what's called the United Pentecostal Church, UPC, uh, that teach that uh, they teach modalism, that the Trinity is not three distinct persons, but only uh, one person wearing different hats. And here's the, here's the big beef, though, that I have with the charismatic movement, is that it is microwave spirituality. For them to become zealous or fervent in spirit has to do with emotion. You come to a service, you have some experience, and all of a sudden you think you're a prophet. You think that you're an apostle. You think that you have all these kind of things. Do you know what it looks like to be a spirit-filled person? It looks like reading your Bible every day for 40 years. It looks like praying every day for 40 years, repenting of your sins every day for 40 years. One of the reasons that uh, uh, the charismatic movement has grown so fast in the U.S. is that it's microwave spirituality. It's quick fix. We don't like things that take time and effort. But Christianity is a marathon, it's not a sprint. So this is not saying get fired up, although there's nothing wrong with getting fired up, okay? It's qualified by the last statement there, serve the Lord. What does true righteousness look like? It looks like being obedient to Christ. It looks like prayer and Bible study and confession and community and being a part of a church for the rest of your life. And you grow slowly and slowly. Discipleship is a slow, painful, awful, difficult, amazing process. So I want to say this. If you're saying, okay, Zach, this text says that we should be fervent in our spirit for Christ. I don't feel like I have a lot of passion for Christ. Let me say something to you, okay? For most of my adult life, I have not felt close to God. Most of the time, I don't feel close to God. Most of the time, I feel like uh, God is a million miles away. That's how I feel most of the time. And I have prayed every day and continue to do so that God would let me feel his closeness, but he has not answered that prayer. Do you know why? Because that's not what's best for me. For someone who is trusting whether or not God is close based upon my emotion, the worst thing God can do is give me that emotion because then he's teaching me to trust the wrong thing. You see, if every time I think that God's far away or feel like he's far away, I think he is, and every time I feel like he's close, I think he is, the worst thing that God could do is confirm that and make me feel his presence because then in the future, I will always be on this weird roller coaster of feeling like sometimes God loves me, sometimes he doesn't, like I'm plucking a flower. That's how I'll feel. So what God is teaching me is this, that I have to learn that he loves me based upon what his word says, not based upon how I feel, okay? So if you're like me, I just want to encourage you. If you're saying, Zach, I just don't feel like I have a lot of passion for God, let me encourage you, okay? One, that's okay. Pray about it. Ask God for those feelings. It's okay to cry out, restore to me the joy of your salvation. That's a good thing. Ideally, your actions and your heart would match, but it's okay right now if they don't because a lot of times passion comes with seeing long seasons of God's faithfulness, okay? The other thing I would say to you if you say, well, Zach, I, don't, I, I know I'm a Christian, but I just don't feel like I have a lot of passion for God. Here's what I'd say to you. That's okay. God's truth is still true 
regardless of whether or not you feel it. Emotions are not bad. Feelings are good. That's a gift God has given us to best experience life. The problem with emotions and feelings, though, is they are often liars. The Bible's always true. My emotions are only sometimes true. Trust the process. Trust the process, okay? Let's keep looking here together. Verse 12, rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, be constant in prayer. Let's look at this first command, rejoice in hope. The Bible just commanded us to be a rejoicing people, to be a joyful people. Now, you might say, well, wait a second, Zach. You don't know what I have going on in my life. I'm sick. I have kids that are sick. I have anxiety. I have financial issues. I have marriage issues. I've got some sort of problem. And so when that problem goes away, then I will rejoice, but not until then. Here's my question for you. How can the Apostle Paul say that he is, quote, sorrowful yet always rejoicing? Because his rejoicing is not based upon his circumstance. It's not based upon his situation. I think that I will rejoice when good things happen, okay? But the problem is a lot of our lives are spent in difficult seasons. What this text is, not gonna, is, gonna say is, this text is not going to say rejoice based upon your circumstance. It's going to say this. It's going to say rejoice in hope because Christ is good regardless of your circumstance. Christ is good regardless of your health and your bank account and your job. He is good in and of himself. He is the reward. You don't grow in joy by trying to have more joy. You grow in joy by focusing, according to this text, on hope. Not by looking at your current circumstance, but by looking in the future, the hope you have in Christ, that one day you'll be resurrected and you will never get sick again because resurrected bodies don't get sick. That one day you will never have any more anxiety, never have any more depression, never have any more loneliness, never have any more fear. If you're a Christian, worst case scenario for you is eternal bliss. That's worst case scenario. The more you focus on that hope, the more you will find yourself rejoicing. Rejoicing is not dependent upon circumstance. It's dependent upon God. How can the Psalms have worship Psalms that aren't just joyful, but David's worshiping through tears? He's worshiping in sorrow. He's worshiping in confusion. My enemies have surrounded me. It seems like uh, God is a liar. What is happening? And yet, there's a way to worship in those emotions as well, that we are to rejoice and hope. Now, look at the next one. This is the one in my study that most hit me personally, and it is this command. Be patient in tribulation. Be patient in tribulation. Let me tell you why this hit me. We think that normal life is when things are going well, and then all of a sudden there's some type of tribulation, some type of difficulty, right? Something happens with our family, something happens with our health, something happens to a loved one, something happens, that some sort of tribulation, and we first think this isn't real life. I just got to get back to where things are good. That's real life. Okay, the first thing I want to say is no, the tribulation is real life as well. When some type of tribulation or some type of difficulty comes up in our life, the first thing that we want to do is get rid of the tribulation. Something bad happens, and our first thought is, get me out of this. Get me out of this. Okay, now let me be very clear. Everybody look at me so you make sure you don't misunderstand me. If you have some tribulation in your life that you can get out of, please do it. Please get out of it. If you are sick, go to the doctor. If you have a bad marriage, come get marriage counseling. Whatever it is, if you have some tribulation that you can get out of, get out of it. But what about when you've tried to get out of it over and over and over again, and it just doesn't go away? Here's the biblical command for you. Ready? To be patient in tribulation. See, when we're going through a struggle, the first thing we want to do is get out of the struggle. Oftentimes, God will just keep you in the struggle. Everybody here realize that God could get you out of whatever you're struggling with today, yet he has decided not to do it. So instead, ask yourself, why am I in this tribulation? And most often, it's because God is teaching you that he is greater than your circumstance. He's teaching you that he loves you even when you're at your worst. 
God is doing something that you often don't see, and we just want out of it, whereas the biblical command here is to be patient within it. Imagine that you're on a treadmill, and it's set to that setting that's just one too high for you, like it's just a little bit too high. You're on the treadmill, and you know, you're sucking for air, and your lungs are burning, and you've got that stitch on your side, and you're just thinking, get me off the treadmill, get me off the treadmill, get me off the treadmill, get me off the treadmill. That's all we want. But if you get off the treadmill, you don't actually become a better runner. What God is doing is He's putting you on a spiritual treadmill, and instead of just saying, get me out of the treadmill, maybe you say, God, I know that you love me. I know that you're enough. I don't know what I'm supposed to learn. Maybe you're not supposed to learn anything. Maybe it's just you learning to trust God. Maybe it's just you enduring suffering so that you grow in character and all these other things. The biblical command is going to be to be patient in tribulation. Whatever you're struggling with, God knows that, and He cares about you, and He is doing it for your good and for a reason. Whether you find out the reason or not, He is good, and you trust Him in the tribulation. Okay? And lastly, be constant in prayer. Be constant in prayer. The idea here is that Christians, we are a praying people. Okay? Prayer is where you're simply talking to God. It doesn't have to be weird. You know how like it's Thanksgiving and like your crazy uncle gets to, to pray and he's like, dear God, we betwixt thine thee. It doesn't have to be like that. Prayer is where you're talking to God. But the idea is that this should be our default, that, that prayer should be like breathing to a Christian. It's something that we're doing all the time. Now, not literally all the time. It's not like I'm on a date with my wife and I'm like, Katie, you look beautiful, Lord, and please forgive me for my sins because tonight, and you've done a great job with the kids and I also need uh, help with this next sermon. Not like that. Like you're driving with your eyes closed praying. That's not what we're talking about. The idea, though, is that you should constantly be in prayer, that that is a source of strength for us, that it is, to quote John Piper, a wartime walkie-talkie between you and God. Verse 13, contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Let's look at the first part of that, contribute to the needs of the saints. I'm going to say something that's a little controversial. Can I have your permission to say something a little controversial? Okay, let me say something controversial. Nobody, I, nobody answered, so I just assume that's a yes. The Bible is going to command you Christians to care for the poor, especially the poor in our midst. Let me say it stronger. The biblical command is for you to care for the poor, not to put someone in office to care for the poor so you don't have to. This is a command given to the church to care for one another. It's something that we are commanded to do, that we are to care for one another. Every time that there's an election season, I will talk to some Christian who will say something like this. Here's a candidate who is super pro-killing babies and super pro-LGBTQ and anti-Christian and anti-freedom of speech, but they care about the poor. And I have to say two things. One, they don't care about the poor. They're millionaires. The poor is a voting block for them. They don't actually know any individual poor people. But two, that's not their job. It's our job to care for the poor. You don't get to obviate your responsibility and get rid of this responsibility so someone else can do it. Caring for the poor means you and I, as Christians, have poor people in our house. We give poor people food. We go volunteer at a soup kitchen, whatever it is, but it is a command given to us. That's the command. Caring for the poor is not voting or tweeting or marching. That's just a way where you can show everybody how great you are and have your reward before men because you're not going to have it in heaven. Rather, the way we do it is through actually loving and caring for one another. That's what the Bible is going to command us to do here. It's especially true within the church. This is specifically about Christians, that we are a family and we care for one another. Now, let me clarify something. It's not wrong for the state to also have things in place to care for the poor. That's totally fine. The Bible would not command anything against that. But that doesn't get rid of your responsibility personally to be caring for one another, to be caring for one another. Let me give you some passages. 
Acts 2, 42-47. Talking about the early Christians. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship to the breaking of bread and the prayers. By the way, I'll pause real quick. If you've ever wondered why we do our services like this at Parkway, part of the reason is because of this verse. We devote ourselves to the apostles' teaching. They're dead. We have their words in the Bible. That's why we teach the Bible. To fellowship, we gather together, and we also meet in community groups during the week. The breaking of bread, we take of communion every week, and the prayers, we pray. And all came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles, and all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. The early church is caring for one another. I heard somebody one time uh, talking about this passage saying that it was a type of communism. And I said, I'm sorry, where is the state mentioned here? This text is the opposite of communism. This is Christians voluntarily sharing their things with one another, not the state redistributing their things. This is us loving one another. That's where the onus falls in this text. James 2, 15 through 16. If a brother or sister, that means Christian, is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? What good is that? As you give to the church, we take some of that money for a benevolence fund to help care for people who are in need here. But here's one of the things that I love. A lot of financial issues that have come up at Parkway have been handled by community groups. Someone has lost their job or they have a medical bill or whatever and they just tell their community group and those people gather together some money and watch their kids or whatever it is and help them. Isn't that great? Isn't that amazing that the body is just being the body? We're commanded to care for the needs of one another, not to enable one another, not to give it to somebody if they're just being lazy. 2 Thessalonians 3, 10 through 12, for even when we were with you, we would give you this command. If anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. Hunger is a great motivator. For we hear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busy bodies. Now such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and to earn their own living. So it's not that we enable somebody who won't work or something like that, but within the body, within, within Christianity, I'm not talking about the state at this point, within Christianity, we care for one another. Yes, we help the poor, but we help the poor among us first. We help the poor among us first. And then lastly, look at the end of verse 13. It says, and seek to show hospitality and seek to show hospitality. Yes, that means you should have people in your home. Yes, that means you should be warm and welcoming. Yes, that means you should be uh, somebody who is seeking to evangelize and love people. In this immediate context, though, it's talking about Christian travelers in the first century. So I don't know if you know this or not, but in the first century, you don't have a whole lot of like Motel 6s or a whole lot of like Hiltons. So if you're traveling, you're dependent upon other Christians to invite you in. And so this text is saying, welcome those who are brothers and sisters in Christ into your home. Love and care for one another, okay? Elsewhere in the Bible, we're told not to welcome someone if they're a false brother, if they're a false teacher, we don't welcome them, but if someone is truly a Christian, to be hospitable, okay? To be hospitable. So, with this command, love one another, and all the different ways that this looks, I want to end by reading something that I read in Theological Equipping a few weeks ago, and I want to explain why this is such a powerful thing. There's a guy in the second century, he's a second century philosopher, and his name is Aristides, okay, Aristides. He's not a Christian, and he's writing a letter to the emperor Hadrian at the time. The Roman emperor is a guy named Hadrian, and Aristides writes this letter to Hadrian to describe what Christians are like. The emperor is not a Christian, Aristides is not a Christian. So this is a pagan describing to another pagan what he has seen in looking at this new group of Christianity that's been going around the Roman Empire, and here's what he says. 
They do not commit adultery or fornication, nor bear false witness, nor embezzle what is held in pledge, nor covet that which is not theirs. They honor father and mother and show kindness to those near to them. And whenever they are judges, they judge uprightly. They do not worship idols made in the image of man. Whatever they would not want others to do to them, they do not do to others. They comfort their oppressors and make them their friends. They are good to their enemies. Their women are pure as virgins and their daughters are modest. Their men keep themselves from every unlawful union and from all uncleanness. Falsehood is not found among them. They love one another. From widows do they not turn away their esteem and they rescue orphans from anyone who treats them harshly. The one who has gives to him who does not have without boasting. Now look at this next part. If there is anyone among them who is poor and needy, and if they do not have any extra food, they fast two or three days in order to supply to the needy their lack of food. They obey the commands of their Messiah with much care, living justly and seriously as the Lord their God commanded them. That is what it looked like. Jesus does not say, they will know you're my disciples by your Awanas program. They will know you're my disciples even by your intelligence or your good theology. People will know that we're Christ's disciples for our love, especially to one another. Let's pray as those uh, helping pass out the elements for communion come forward. Father, we thank you for your grace. We thank you for sending Christ to live the life we should have lived. That uh, when he was struck, he did not strike back. That he uh, loved the poor, cared for those who were needy. We thank you for giving us the Holy Spirit, co-equal, co-eternal with the Father and the Son. We bless your name, Trinitarian God. Would you be with us as we partake of communion and remember Christ's sacrifice? Amen.